It's uh, time for our Bible reading. We're going to be reading from Luke chapter 22, which is on page 905 of the Black Pew Bibles. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it? They asked. Jesus replied, as you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the, in, to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? but I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom, just as my father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. Then Jesus asked them, when I sent you without purse, bag or sandals, did you lack anything? 
Nothing, they answered. He said to them, but now, if you have a purse, take it, and also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. It is written, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. The disciples said, see, Lord, here are two swords. That's enough, he replied. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of, Olive, the Mount of Olives and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer, he went back to the disciples. He found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping? He asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. This is the word of the Lord. If you had 24 hours left to live, what would you do? How would you feel? 10.36 a.m. tomorrow, Monday morning, you will breathe your last breath. Kind of changes things, doesn't it? And that's where Jesus is. He knows it. He knows he's going to die. Sometimes we think about the gospel in these spiritual, cosmic terms, but we actually distance ourselves from the reality of what Jesus did. We can't disconnect ourselves from his humanity and to, to understand what it truly cost him, what he truly accomplished in the way that he went about going to that cross. So this this Sunday, leading up to Easter, I just want us to immerse ourselves in his final hours, get a sense for his heartbeat, truly learn what it was like for what Jesus did and what that means for us, so that when we get to Good Friday next week and Easter Sunday, we can have hopefully a fresh new appreciation of the grand cosmic eternal stuff because we've gotten close to the heartbeat of Jesus, the Son of God. So we're just going to walk through this passage. We're just going to see who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. So I want you to keep your Bibles open. That would be great. So we encounter the heart of Jesus. The first thing that we're going to look at is Jesus' love. Jesus' love. Um, you've got all these details in the first bit of the reading coming up to this Passover meal where Jesus says, go talk to this dude. He's going to prepare this stuff and there's going to be a room and it's all a bit confusing. But don't, don't get lost in the details. This is an ordinary moment in the life of Jewish people to gather for the Passover. This was the pinnacle of the Jewish calendar because it was the declaration of God's love, God's freedom, God's care for his people. And so this is, this is the center, and it's no mistake that this is the moment at which Jesus dies. There is no mistake. And with Jesus' final hours, look at verse 15. He says to his disciples, I have eagerly 
desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. He, he could spend his last hours doing anything, and he's saying, I just want to be with you. My friends, my brothers, my companions. There's no other place that he would be. But unlike me, if I was to know that I would die in 24 hours, I think I'd just be a mess. And it'd be everyone else's job to hold me together and to comfort me, and we'd all just kind of have a big cry fest, and it'd be all over the place. But Jesus wants to be with his closest friends because there's nowhere he'd rather be. But he spends his final hours on them. He, he gives himself over to what they need, not what he needs. It's incredible that Jesus, in the good moments, is able to love and to serve and to have compassion. But when the rubber hits the road, when he's right at the end of his life, he still looks upon his disciples and says, I love you. I am for you. He actually takes his final meal. And it's familiar. We know about the Last Supper. We've heard about it. It's famous. There's, there's pictures. There's, there's stories. There's all sorts of stuff. But just put yourself in the seat of Jesus. His final meal, he gives over to creating really an eternal pillar for his people to depend on him. Because even today, as we're going to go out into the foyer and do it soon, we get to take the Lord's Supper. He uses his final meal to love his disciples so well so that they might consistently and tangibly as they eat and drink be rooted in the love that he gives them. It's incredible. And it's the truth today. It anchors us in, in grace. Even now in 21st century Sydney, Jesus has given us the gift of his final day so that we can appreciate him, so that we can love him. But it's not a mistake, it's not a coincidence that we're at Passover and this is when Jesus walks to the cross and this is when Jesus dies. Because Passover was really about the love of God being poured out upon his people. And when Jesus dies, he, he gives over himself for the love of his people. The, the disciples, if you look, they're enjoying the, the Passover. Verse 14, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. They're going through the motions. They're eating the bread. They're drinking the wine. They're doing the things. And they're looking back to Exodus. They're looking back to thousands of years ago when, well, a bit over a thousand years ago, when God's people were rescued out of slavery and set free with the blood over the doorpost. And they're, they're looking back without realizing that Jesus' eyes are on something entirely different. Jesus is serving, offering wine and bread and, and looking at his disciples, not looking at this lamb that died, but looking upon his own death. He's preparing to be sacrificed on their behalf. The heart of the Passover, an unblemished lamb slaughtered and the blood splattered across the doorfront of your home so that you would survive and live. Easter, the moment where your life, your broken, sinful, mistaken life is saturated in the blood of Jesus. He washes you clean. It's the great irony that we dip our robes in the blood of the lamb and they come out cleaner and purer than we could ever imagine. He covers us in his blood. And so this moment is so beautiful as Jesus looks at each one of his, his brothers, his friends, and he says, take and drink this. This is my blood, not a metaphor, my blood that is shed for you. And you get to take it because you get to receive it. And it's going to change everything for you. Take this bread. This is my body that is going to be broken for you. Beaten, bruised and battered. 
for you. This old little picture of the, the lamb is coming to this brand new, beautiful fulfillment. He talks about it here in verse 20. He says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. If the old covenant was worth celebrating for thousands of years as the moment of declaration of freedom because a lamb died, what about the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? What about the infinite, eternal son of God opening his veins that you might be covered and set free? It's grim. It's grim because it was necessary. And Jesus is sitting here with his brothers saying, I'm doing this for you. I'm doing this for you. Don't miss how personal this is. He could have taught about his death in all sorts of ways, and he does. He talks about um, you know, a ransom for many, and you know, he talks about freedom and slavery. But when he comes on the eve of his death, this is the primary picture that he chose to give us of his body. And that is an intimate meal. Because Jesus loves he doesn't offer forgiveness from a distance, just kind of throwing his blood over there so that you might catch a little bit. He sits down at the table with you. And he hands you the bread and he says, would you eat it? I give it to you. What about this cup? Will you drink it? I've, I've died for you. You can just imagine. Can you imagine? They're, they're sitting at a table. They're actually reclining at the table. They're on the ground. It's very intimate. It's very, very earthy. And you can just picture as Jesus offers that cup, he just looks in the eyes of Peter and John and James. He says, take this, take this cup. This, this is my blood, which is poured out for you. He's looking you in the eyes. He says, this is my body, my blood given for you. It's incredible. He was looking at his 12 disciples but I have no doubt that your specific name on his divine mind was still there. That he thought of you as he prepared himself to be murdered because he loves you that much. A verse I love is Isaiah 49, 16. It says this, See, I have engraved you on the palm of my hands. On Jesus' scarred hands, your name is tattooed. Maybe not literally, but figuratively, he knows you, you specifically. And at that intimate setting, you are on his mind. And when we go out there and we take the Lord's Supper together, we are in that room. We are sitting with our Jesus as he offers himself for us. Not that he dies again when we do it, but that we remember you were on his mind and he loves you. At the heart of who Jesus is, at the heart of everything, is that he loves you. Do you know that? Do you know that he knows everything that you are, everything that you've done, everything that you've been through, and he looks upon you and says, I'll give myself for you. It's been said that Jesus would still have gone and died if you were the only sinful person because he loves you that much. I think it's true. Jesus' love is incredible. But check out Jesus' patience, all right? This is where it gets awesome for me. He's, he's at his final hours. He's on his way to death. I think the disciples know a little bit. It says that they fell asleep later because they were so troubled. So they kind of know something's coming. He's talking about being betrayed. He's talking about, like, you clue on, guys. You know that this is something important, right? And yet, have a look at verse 24. This is nuts. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. If you're sitting there as Jesus, you're like, come on, dudes. 
I'm about to be killed. And you guys are talking about who's the greatest. James is like, bro, did you see me exercise that demon? I am the apostle. And you go, Peter, Peter, I'm the rock at which we're going to build the church upon, right? And they're like, Peter, you're the only rock you are is rock-headed. <laughs> you know, like you can just imagine them just being so stupid as they debate around this table. Which one of us is going to be better? Again, final 24 hours, you're sitting with your closest friends and they make it all about them. What do you do? Well, Jesus, right through to the end, is so patient with thick-headed people like you and me. And he still dedicates his words, his time to loving them. It's incredible. It's incredible. You don't need to look any further than Peter to see that Jesus is so patient. In verse 31 to 32, it says this, Simon, Simon, or Peter, Satan has asked to sift you all as wheat. Isn't that terrifying? But I've prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. A little later, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. Jesus knows right from the beginning that this man is going to be a coward, and he's going to walk away, and yet he says, Simon, I prayed for you, that you'll come back. And you know what? When I called you, Peter, the rock on which I will build this church, I knew that you'd deny me. I did. And I still chose you. Why? Because I am the patient God who bears with all of your inconsistencies, all of your flaws, all of your your failures. Even after you come to faith, as you fail again and again and again, I'm still there. I'm still patient. I still love you. Do you look at Jesus like that? To know that even now, as you still stuff it up, don't live as you potentially ought to. He's still just there with arms wide open, ready to receive you. Instead of rebuking the disciples for talking about being greatest, he instead says, you're not to be like that. Look at me. I'm serving you literally right now at this table. You go to John and you get to see him washing their feet. It's a tangible example. He said, don't be like that. I'm for you and you need to be different. In Matthew 11, he says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest, for I am gentle and humble in heart. That is our Jesus. Whether you're weary because life is hard or you're weary because your own sinfulness keeps getting in the way, Jesus says, Come to me. He's patient. He doesn't want you to come because you feel guilty. He doesn't want you to come because you um, are just at the end of your rope. He just wants you to come because he loves you. He wants you to come because... He is gentle and humble in heart. I wonder if there's anyone sitting here today who's still just living with a burden of guilt on them, the weight of sin and and all of their shame just kind of sitting there, when Jesus, you don't need to carry that anymore. You can come back to me. And when you stuff it up again, you can come back to me again until that final day when I make you perfect, you can always come back to me. Sometimes when I I fall apart, I sin, I feel like I need to give God a couple of days to cool off, as if he's like angry dad, and I've got to make sure, okay, wait till he's feeling a bit better, then I'll come and say so. He just wants me to come back immediately, because he loves us. He gets us. And the reason this is so powerful is because he doesn't just say it. He doesn't just talk about it. He embodies it. And this is where you get Jesus' example. This is where you get to see the heart of Jesus come to life, because all of us can talk a big game, right? We can present ourselves in a way to say that we are something that we're not. But Jesus, when when the rubber hits the road, he lives it. It's incredible. When he starts talking to them, look at this, verse 25, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them 
And those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors, but you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? Catch this, but I am among you as one who serves. You've been a a follower of Jesus for a while. You know that. You know that Jesus is a servant. You know that Jesus washes feet. But don't let that be a distant thing that you know about. Let it be the heartbeat of your faith that you realize that Jesus, the Son of God, serves you, gets his sponge in between the dirty feet of his disciples and is willing to debase himself and humiliate himself for your sake. It's incredible, not just because of all that he does to serve, but because of who he is. When you catch a sense of how glorious Jesus is, you just are floored by everything that he gives up and everything that he does. He is the eternal one. He is the almighty God himself. He is the alpha, the beginning, and the omega, the end. John 1 says that he was the word who was with God at the beginning, the word who was God. This is God we are talking about. He's the one through him all things were made and currently all things hold together. He's literally sitting at a dinner table talking about his death while he holds them together. This is the Jesus that takes his clothes off and takes the posture of a servant. And this is the Jesus who dies to ultimately serve you. There's an incredible poem. I don't know if you're into poems, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. Um, the incredible poem by John Piper that I came across a few years ago, and it's, it's really helped me to grasp a little bit of what we're talking about. It'll come up on the screen. It's called Calvary Love. It's talking about Jesus. It says, He held the world between thumb and finger like a tender grape. And when the spike was driven through his hand, his muscles flinched with world-creating force, and crimson wine dripped from his fingertips. But with omnipotent resolve, he neither dropped nor crushed the grape. Can you believe that? Jesus, to die for you, held together with his power the very spikes that went through his hands. Held the life of those who were were hammering those spikes in. With everything that Jesus is as the eternal, powerful God himself, he directs it all for you and for me. It's incredible what Jesus does, what Jesus sets for us. When you, when you really just come close to with the heart of Jesus, that he would be willing to go through all of that. There is no one like this Jesus. It changes everything, especially when you see what he goes through in himself and in his soul. Because we move away from the dinner table and we come to the Mount of Olives and we get to see Jesus in his grief. Have a look at verse 44. He's in the Mount, he's praying. It says, and being in anguish. You think, oh no, but he's the infinite son of God. How could he feel that way? Because he became a man for you. He feels everything that we feel. And the word here for anguish is the word for agony. He is, he is so stricken to his core, so overwhelmed by grief, by what is right in front of him. It's, a, it's one thing for us to talk about, look at him, the son of God holding the grape. But look at what he wrestled within himself to do that. Oh, Jesus is just incredible. It says, after he being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly. 
If you know what he was praying, he was saying, Father, take this cup from me. He's so overwhelmed. He's like, please, God, don't let me do it. 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 He's just so overwhelmed that, that it says his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Some people have tried to suggest that this is like a physical thing, that it can happen when you get that distressed, that you're, you can sweat blood. I don't know if that's a real thing or not, but regardless, he is just so physically having a visceral reaction that there is sweat hitting the floor. Now, don't ask you to think about it like this to hurt you, but to realize what God has given you. Think back to a time in your life where you've suffered, where you've I don't know, had incredible pain or loneliness or grief. You've lost someone that you loved. Think of that, just that visceral tightness in your chest and that sense that it'll never be okay. Jesus went through that. He's been there. He knows what you've experienced. But more than empathy or camaraderie or being able to go, yeah, yeah, I've been there too, brother. I've been there too, sister. It's that he did it for you. He went through that for you. He was willing to go all the way there for you. A preacher I love was preaching on a text like this, and he talked about his professor who, while they were on a trip to Israel, they went to the Mount of Olives, and they stood in the place that they thought this all happened. And he, they, they opened up their Bibles, they sat, and they started reading about all that Jesus went through. And about halfway through this internationally renowned professor of New Testament with incredible learning and the ability to preach and communicate like no one else. He just broke down and started weeping. And he asked everyone there's forgiveness that he couldn't finish the lecture because he was overcome. How could I, how could I be in this place where the Lord went through all that for me? And he didn't finish the lecture. They walked away. And when I heard that, all I could think was, I'd All I want to be is that man. It is so easy to forget what Jesus paid for us. Never let our hearts grow cold to what Jesus carried upon his shoulders. He gave so much of himself. It's incredible. He goes through all of these things. And then look at verse 45. When he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, abandoned again, alone again. And yet, he follows through. He keeps going. And this is the last thing. We see that Jesus is obedient to the end. Even with all of this happening, he refuses to let go. The way he prays is incredible. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. And he meant it. You know, sometimes when we pray, we say, God, just lead me where you want me to go. But we don't really mean it. We just want to do our own thing and hope that God approves of it. He's about to die. He's not my will, but yours, God. He was obedient to death, to death on a cross. I think we need to remember when we use these language in prayer, when we talk about not my will, but yours, that the context of that was the imminent crucifixion of the eternal Son of God. The will of God is not just a choice for our comfortable moments. Do you notice what Jesus told the disciples to pray at verse 40? He said, pray that you will not fall into temptation. I don't think Jesus is saying that because he's looking at them being like, oh, you guys have that problem with being tempted. You better pray that it doesn't happen to you. I think he's saying that because he's like, that's what I'm praying. Because my temptation is to run away right now and leave you all dead in your sin. 
and I'm, I'm going to go just go hang out with Mary Magdalene as the Da Vinci Code tells me to, you know? It's, it's just ridiculous. He's saying, don't fall into temptation. Pray, because I, I am feeling the weight of everything that I'm about to go through, and I just want to run away. I just want to give it up. He knew that it wasn't just the physical pain that he would go through. He knew the, the spiritual pain and the emotional pain of what it would mean to be on that cross Because in verse 42, he says, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. That's really intentional language. The cup in the Old Testament was this picture of an image of God's wrath, that when you drank from the cup, you were receiving the judgment that was rightly yours by God. He's saying, take that cup away. I don't want to feel your wrath. Not just dying on a cross, but the infinite eternal God, Father and Son in perfect relationship for all eternity, to then carry the weight of sin of the world on your shoulders and, and your father turning his face away from you? Please, Lord, no. When he's on the cross and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Again, alone, abandoned. Finally, in the most incredible and, and brutal way between his, the father and son, he drinks that cup because it's your cup. He takes that judgment because it was your judgment. And notice the little cool little language play here, that here he's taking the cup of judgment, but at the table, the Lord's Supper, as they sat around, what did he do? He offered his cup. He offered his blood. He offered his life for you. He does the swap. He takes it upon himself. And then verse 45, when he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples... I just think that he could have so easily walked away. They were all sleeping. He could have slipped off into the distance. And that was the moment, I think, that final moment where he he made the decision, I will be obedient all the way through. That's the heart of Jesus, for you. Don't let that go by. It is for you. Jesus' love, Jesus' patience, Jesus' example, Jesus' grief, Jesus' obedience, all for you. Take a moment, what strikes you the most? What do you need to hear? What do you need to hold close to your heart? The last thing I just want to draw your attention to, that in this passage, there are only three things that Jesus asks of disciples. All of it is him giving himself away for them. There's only three things that he asks of them. One, he asks them to receive, just to take the cup, take the bread, receive everything that Jesus was offering you. You have to say yes. You can't just enjoy it from a distance. You must come up close to this Jesus who would give himself for you and you need to receive it. And I think that's an ongoing reception. That's why we do the Lord's Supper so that we can come back to the heartbeat of Jesus and the sacrifice of Jesus and just receive it. You don't do anything other than eat and drink. It's incredible. The second thing is, it says, remember. So he says, take this cup and do it in remembrance of me. And so he's saying, The other thing that you can do is just keep on eating and delighting in the grace that I'm about to give you. You don't need to mourn for me. You don't need to worry about me. Just enjoy it again and again and again. And the only thing that he really does say, you should do this, is he says, pray that you will not fall into temptation. Because to know this Jesus is to try and follow him in a world that wants you to not know this Jesus. And so we must keep coming back to this heartbeat. We must keep coming back to Jesus. And we must pray for ourselves for each other, for our souls. Peter, Satan wants to sift you like wheat. That's still true today. But Peter, I prayed for you. Prayer is powerful. 
He's calling us to pray as well. There's not much to do other than come close to Jesus. Remember Jesus afresh. Let Jesus be the center. Let Jesus be everything that you need. Stop laboring. Stop striving. Stop trying. Just come back. Just come back and and remember him. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we talked about it for the past 30 minutes and yet we still can only get a tiny sense of what you went through for us. For us, we don't deserve it. You are so incredible. It's the reason you told us in the scriptures, pray that we might grasp how high and wide and deep the love of Christ is because it is so unfathomable, Lord Jesus. Thank you. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your life. Thank you for your example. Thank you for what you did. We rest in you. We depend upon you. We receive you, God. Thank you again.